I Take History with My Coffee podcast, Episode 7, The India Armadas. Arms and the heroes who from Lisbon's shore, through seas where sail never spread before, beyond where Ceylon lifts her spicy breast and waves her woods above the watery waste, with prowess more than human, forced their way to the fair kingdoms of the rising day. Os Luciatus, Luis de Camelos, 1572. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. Within 16 years of da Gama's voyage, Portugal established a permanent foothold in Asia, a long-lasting presence that would end in 1999 when Macau was turned over to the Chinese. The late historian J.H. Eliot remarked that the history of the Portuguese intrusion into the Indian Ocean is an epic of ruthless savagery. We must keep in mind that the Portuguese were devout crusaders. King Manuel's first grand scheme was the complete encirclement of Islam. He desired to cut off the supply of spice and wealth and bring Islam to its knees. He saw a pan-European movement for a Mediterranean crusade. Part of the strategy was to sail up the Red Sea, capture the body of the prophet, and liberate Jerusalem. The Portuguese, though, never had more than 3,000 men in the region during the entire 16th century. Their success was built upon military power, naval guns, shipbuilding, seamanship, and the Crusaders' honor code. Their arrival was a jolt to the monsoon marketplace. As we have seen, the monsoon marketplace was a complex set of exchanges between cultures and religions. It was a comparatively peaceful free trade zone, a place of accommodation between Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. God, it was said, has given the sea in common. There were no war fleets to protect trade. No shipborne gunpowder weapons. Into this came the Portuguese, with fast firing bronze cannon, a single minded intention to monopolize the spice trade, a keen sense of a religious mission, and a century of experience in exploring Africa that enabled them to rapidly learn the nature of the Indian Ocean, the monsoon patterns the key trading hubs, the choke points, and the politics. 
they acquired by siege or treaty critical ports from Mozambique to Malacca in order to forge an empire of forts and bases tethered together by a mobile sea power. Only six months after da Gama's return, a larger fleet was outfitted and ready to depart. Sure, Columbus had added the Americas to the European knowledge of the world, but their potential had not yet been fully appreciated. Da Gama's voyage, though, was seen as an instant game-changer, an opportunity to reap enormous profits from the coveted spice trade. Therefore, all eyes turned to the Portuguese court of Manuel I. Florentine and Genoese bankers invested heavily in the new fleet, hoping to seize an advantage over their Venetian rivals. This armada, a fleet of 13 ships and 1,200 men, would be the first of many armadas that would sail between Lisbon and India until the mid-17th century. These were the Armadas da Inja, and the route they undertook was known as the Carrera da Ninja, the India Run. Within the first five years of the 16th century, Manuel I would send fleets of ever-increasing size. It would be a national effort in mobilizing manpower, expanding shipbuilding capacity, obtaining material resources, and conveying a strategic vision. Pedro Alvarez Cabral was given command of this fleet. The expedition would represent the shift from simple exploration to commerce and eventually conquest. Cabral's mission was to get the Zamorin of Calicut to come to terms favorable to the Portuguese, seize Muslim merchant ships, deliver a group of Franciscan missionaries, and to obtain as much spice as he could. Cabral readily took advantage of the knowledge that the Gama had brought back with him. He intended to follow the same route as da Gama, including the swing out into the Atlantic. The departure was timed to coincide with the monsoon season, and there were Malay natives who had been taught Portuguese. It was hoped that they would eliminate the need for Arabic middlemen. Among the crew was a converted Jew, referred to as Gaspar da Gama. He had been a Jew whom Vasco da Gama captured on his return trip in the belief that he was a spy. In order to secure his freedom, he converted to Christianity. Gaspar would act as an interpreter and advise in matters of Indian politics. The king's physician, another converted Jew, served as an astronomer and was tasked with charting the stars of the Southern Hemisphere for navigation. To avoid the embarrassment that da Gama had suffered, Gabral took with him more choice items. Learning from da Gama's mistake, 
the fleet carried a cargo of merchandise that would be much more attractive to the natives of the Malabar coast. Coral, copper, mercury, both fine and coarse cloth, velvet, satin, and gold. An experienced trader who knew Arabic, Ayes Carrera, was in charge of a team of personnel required to set up a trading post in Calicut. Cabral did not have the status of seaman like da Gama or Diaz. He was more of a diplomat. It was felt this skill set would help smooth over the rough start encountered by da Gama on his initial visit. Cabral had a multi-page guide, crafted in part by da Gama himself, that provided him with explicit instructions for various scenarios and he was given permission to take whatever action necessary against any perceived enemies. Cabral departed Lisbon on March 9, 1500, with the same pomp and ceremony afforded Vasco da Gama upon his departure three years earlier. The only difference was that Manuel I actually attended Cabral's departure. Orders were to follow the looping course taken by da Gama, and in doing so, the fleet inadvertently swung out too far and ended up in the side of the coast of South America, the first Europeans to do so. On April 22, 1500, they spotted a high mountain surrounded by flat land. Cabral would dub this mountain Mount Pascoal. Portuguese, for Easter, since it had been Easter week. It is located near the city of Porto Seguro, Bahia, Brazil. They stayed long enough to take on provisions. On resuming their journey, the fleet headed eastward, but ran into a gale. Five of the 13 ships were lost at sea. The remaining seven did make the trip around the Cape of Good Hope, made a stop at friendly Malindi for supplies, and arrived at Calicut on September 13th. Cabral's orders, in some ways, were contradictory. On the one hand, he was to establish peaceful relations with the Zamoran of Calicut and extend a friendly hand to any of the Muslims within the port. But outside the Zamoran's territory, Cabral was to essentially wage war against Muslim shipping. He was to, quote, take possession of them and of their merchandise and property, and also of the Muslims who are in the ships, end quote. Portuguese were well aware of their superior firepower and they intended to make use of it. They would engage with Arab ships with the use of cannon rather than at close quarters. Pilots and captains were valuable personnel and taken alive. The fate of anyone else was left to Cabral's discretion. After some brief but tense negotiations, Cabral was allowed to meet with the Zamoran at court 
Cabral arrived with his gifts and a list of hefty demands. Restitution for goods left behind by da Gama, preferential taxes and tariffs, lower prices on spices, a secure trading post, an exemption to a rule that the Zamoran inherited the goods of a deceased merchant. Portuguese had also mistakenly believed that the Zamoran was just a wayward Christian. He was advised that the Franciscans were there to correct the error of his faith. And Cabral let the Zamoran know that the Portuguese intended to wage a holy war against any Muslims outside of his realm. After over two months of negotiation, an agreement was settled upon by both parties, and a station for trading spices was created. Trading posts such as this were called factories. person in charge was known as the factor, a person who conducted business as a representative of another. The processing of spices was slow, and after two months, the Portuguese only had sent out two ships laden with the precious cargo. The factor, Ferreira, hinted that the Arab ships were leaving Calicut secretly full of cargo. Cabral complained to the Zamorin and was granted permission to go after such ships. Cabral seized his first Muslim ship and confiscated the merchandise. This act ignited the simmering tensions between the established Arab community and the Portuguese interlopers. A mob rioted through the streets of Calicut and in the process burned the factory and killed 50 Portuguese soldiers and several of the Franciscan friars. Cabral and the remainder of his crew escaped to the ships. Cabral decided he had enough. In a show of force, he seized 10 more Arab ships, confiscated their cargoes, and had everyone killed, and the ships burned. Unsure of the Zamoran's position, he bombarded Calicut for an entire day. Then on Christmas Eve, he sailed south, leaving behind a smoldering Calicut. Cabral found a receptive environment in the port of Couchin. Here he traded for pepper and other goods, enough to fill the holds of his ships. He was also allowed to set up a small factory. By mid-January 1501, Cabral, though, was forced to leave Couchin, as there were rumors that the Samoran of Calicut had gathered a fleet of 80 warships. Five months later, Cabral was back in Lisbon, hailed as another hero. In 1502, Vasco da Gama was given command of the next India Armada. His fleet of 10 ships were supported by two other fleets of five ships, one led by his uncle, the other by his nephew. His mission was simple. Force the East African Sultanates and the Zamorin of Calicut to bow to Portuguese might, thereby taking full control of the Indian trade. The way da Gama accomplished this 
would set the tone for the Portuguese in the region. His second trip to India would be marred by piracy and massacre. After rounding the Cape of Good Hope, da Gama set about terrorizing the Muslim ports along the African coast. Off the coast of Malabar, he attacked a ship filled with over 250 Muslim pilgrims, which included women and children. Despite the ship surrendering without a fight and the merchants offering their wealth, an eyewitness would recount, quote, with great cruelty and without any pity, the admiral burned the ship and all who were in it, end quote. The deed reverberated throughout the region and was long remembered by both Hindu and Muslim alike. Upon arriving at Calicut, da Gama demanded the Zamoran expel all the Muslims from the city. In a show of Portuguese power, he had the undefended port bombarded for two days. Then he had over 30 Muslim captives hung, their ears and noses cut off, and their bodies sent to shore. The Zamoran reacted by sending out a fleet to ambush da Gama. Forewarned, da Gama made his way to the friendly ports of Cauchin and Ketanor, where he loaded his ships with spices. Then he looted Muslim ships along the coast as he made a hasty trip back to Portugal. Da Gama arrived back in Lisbon in September of 1503. He did not receive the same hero's reception. Though he brought back a nice profit in spices, he had failed to gain the submission of the Zamorin, even with extreme acts of cruelty. Gama's actions would become the rule rather than the exception. The Portuguese realized that they would not have the manpower to take over territory. Fear would be the means by which they would be able to bring local populations under their control. Afonso de Albuquerque, who would later be the second viceroy of India and who we'll talk about more in the next episode, stated to the king, This use of terror will bring great things to your obedience without the need to conquer them. Therefore, terror and violence were an integral part of the Portuguese strategy, more so than diplomacy, of gaining the trading rights in Southeast Asia. And it formed the foundation of their emerging empire. By 1505, King Manuel I felt it was time to establish a permanent Portuguese presence in the region. To this end, he appointed Francisco de Almeida as first viceroy of the new Portuguese Estado de India, date of India. Almeida was a nobleman and a soldier and he had a career as an advisor to King John II, and then distinguished himself in the wars against the Moors, 
including the Iberian conquest of Granada in 1492. He was to command a fleet of 22 ships, 1,500 soldiers, and 1,000 sailors. Almeida picked up where da Gama had left off in East Africa. He set about ravaging the coast and sacked the major points of Kilwa, Mombasa, and Mozambique. The Portuguese built a fort in Kilwa, and Almeida left behind a garrison of 550 men. Sailing across the Indian Ocean, he stopped at Anzadivia Island, a common provisioning place, and constructed a fort there as well. And then he sailed to Cauchin. In Cauchin, Almeida discovered that the factory Cabral had set up had been destroyed and the Portuguese traders killed. In response, he sent his son with six ships to Killian Harbor, further south on the coast. Here, the Portuguese fleet captured and destroyed over two dozen Muslim merchant ships. The Zamoran of Calicut sent out a flotilla of 200 warships against the smaller Portuguese fleet. Almeida's son intercepted them at the entrance to Cananoa Harbor. During the naval battle, the Zamoran, despite his vast numbers, suffered heavy losses in both lives and ships. The defeat forced the Zamoran to forge an alliance with other local rulers. In April of 1507, the Zamoran and his new allies attempted to besiege the new Portuguese fortress at Cananor. But the firepower of the garrison repulsed several attacks, which led to a stalemate. The siege lasted over four months until relief came in the form of a newly arrived Portuguese fleet. In the end, a peace was negotiated, and the Portuguese presence on the Malabar coast continued, as did their access to the lucrative spice markets of southern India. It would be the Mamluks of North Africa who would mount the first organized armed attempt to dislodge the Portuguese. In the next episode, we will discuss Afonso de Albuquerque's legacy in Southeast Asia. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History with My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com. And also consider liking the I Take History with My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are always welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. If you know anyone else, who would enjoy this podcast, please share it with them. And thanks for listening.